0: Welcome to the Beekeepers Corner Podcast. April 17th, 2022, Episode 209, Headknocker. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. In Episode 209, I'm Kevin England. I had this thought, which, as you'll hear, is a good thing about the name of the show. The beekeeper's corner and the line from Dirty Dancing popped in my head. Nobody puts baby in the corner. How's that for an example of how my brain works? Brain works. Just hold on to that for a second. Around here, we tend to like being in the corner, meaning our little corner of the world where we get to talk about beekeeping. And I think we'll have a pretty good show lined up for you here. I have a lot of content prepped. So we'll blather on about the opening. Let's run down what's on the list and get to it. Round table number one, bee vectoring out in the world. I'll give you a little report on how it's going. Number two, something that's not really that wonderful. Number three, a disappointing thing to share about a personal experience. Number four, a follow on to my self inflicted poly woes from winter. And something to learn. Number five, Mort checked in. I'll have a little ditty on bee biology concerning. Worker brood, that's interesting to consider. Number six, it's swarm season. Want to share a video link about Swarm Commander and talk about setting swarm traps. And for our topic of this episode, we know that old comb is detrimental to bees and that it harbors impurities that can harm our bees. But have we ever linked? What exactly is the connection? I'm going to take a shot at breaking something down and connect the dots for you. Uh, just a couple things to think about before I dive in. You know, we sell t-shirts around here, not to promote the business, but just if you ever wanted to wear a t-shirt that says the beekeeper's corner. I think way back when, when I set that up, I set it up, as you'll remember if you've heard about this, you know, dollar a shirt advantage for me, only because the platform that I use, Teespring, Requires you to have some profit, or they won't let you sell the goods. Imagine that. If you wanted a Beekeepers Corner T-shirt, bkcorner.org. The only reason I bring this up is somebody asked me recently, "Where do I get a T-shirt?" Well, the answer is, you go to the homepage. It's right there on the right side. Just happened to watch a video of that I posted of myself doing a presentation wearing a Beekeepers Corner T-shirt a few minutes ago, and that prompted me to say, "Hey, yeah, don't forget to." Uh, call that out. Okay round table one let's go. Round table number one I call this one vector. It's about B vectoring. Flight 209 are clear for vector three two four. We have Clarence Clarence Roger Roger. what's our vector Victor? Tarot radioed clearance over. that's Clarence Ovour over. That passage, one of the many comical runs from the cockpit crew of Flight 209 from the 1980 comedy movie Airplane. It's apropos to work in my goofy movie associations for this roundtable as it relates to a process related to beekeeping in a novel way. Bee vectoring. The concept, I believe was approved by the EPA back in 2019, makes use of honeybees to deliver a chemical payload... the plant that they visit. In January 2021, the state of California approved its use and it is in the news that ongoing research of the use of the technique in California is taking place in the almond groves. What is bee vectoring about? In this case, scientists have postulated that they can use honeybees to do double duty, so to speak, when it comes to pollination of almonds. The information I'm about to relay is not truly a news story as it comes directly from a press release, but I found it interesting nonetheless that the company that's doing the work, NVT, shared a statement about their novel ongoing work to use honeybees to deliver a payload that helps the almond trees they are pollinating. This turned up, of all places, in one of my stock insider news stories, and given the title. I clicked back to the website streetinsider.com and their posting of the bulletin. The stock associated with the press release is BEVVF, Bravo Edward Victor, Victor Foxtrot, associated to the B-Vectoring Technologies Incorporated. It appears this company received clearance last year to commence initial trials in California and worked with growers in the 2021 almond season. Despite, by their words, challenging conditions out in the fields, it yielded favorable results last year, so they're going to continue this year. You can only imagine that it's a complex arrangement. Put yourself in the company's shoes. Farmers are a fickle lot, and they will bank on what they know. If a company shows up with some different approach, only recently conceived and approved, Would a farmer give it a run? One thing is, for sure, they'll often let someone else try it and stick to a tried and true method, even if that tried and true method was known to have some warts and flaws. That's what I know about some limited exposure to the topic and discussing matters with those who work with, say, the blueberry industry and growers here in New Jersey. It is telling that a company relayed not only are they continuing to work in almonds, but they have doubled their interactions this year, 2022, bringing on more growers for their program, which just by the press release completed in March. I find the mechanism that they are testing interesting. I have seen a number of concept over the years looking to exploit the bees' comings and goings. And I have to say that this is the first one that I see making it to approval and being tested in the marketplace. I'm not all knowing, and there could be more things going on trying to use this ideology, but the concepts of exploiting bees passing by has always been an interesting one. And it feels like it can lend itself to so many applications in this case. They're using bees leaving the hive as the dispersal method. I'm not sure, given all I had to go on is this press release, how they actually deposited the payload. In the past, I've seen things that go both ways, dropping stuff off for departing bees or inoculating bees incoming into the hive. Once upon a time, there was research going on about a device at the entrance that looked like a large, format plastic apovar strip across the gap. The premise there was it was impregnated with something and each time a bee entered into the hive, its hairs rubbed against whatever was coming, exuding out of the plastic, and they could deliver the payload inside the colony. A contact delivery system at the front door, so to speak. The research was... In the past centered on a delivery of mite deterrent chemicals at least that was the idea I remember being pantied around there was also some work to see if mites could be groomed off of the bee as they passed through and there were also cameras at the entrance looking for hitchhiking mites and all kinds of ideas of the comings and goings as I said of mites leaving and and coming back to the hive, it seems clear there's a lot of thought processes looking to exploit that contact patch at the entrance. Now given researchers and scientists have this idea of possible ways to transfer something to bees, I can only imagine over time perhaps someone will unlock the ways for this to work to a more human advantage for us as beekeepers, so that's why this trial is interesting to me. Now let's take this fungicide application. I think the payload that they're trying to test with almonds is they're trying to deliver fungicides directly to the plants. If they could figure out how to deliver something, let's say this fungicide, then they would not have to spray. Think about the benefit to the grower. You don't have to contract somebody to come in. You save the expense of the labor. Massive amount of labor to spray all the plants with fungicides. You don't have fungicides floating all over the place in your Orchard and the bees are doing double duty. You're already paying for them to come and come out To pollinate. Why not put them to work in delivering fungicides? Now you might say well, I just wish they wouldn't use fungicides The fact is reality is they're going to use fungicides. There has to be a reason they're putting them in there They will not buy and deposit things out in the orchard if it's not useful. So they're going to do it one way or another. This is a more efficient way to deliver the payload and get double the bang for your buck, at least from the grower perspective. I like it because there's just not fungicides blasted all over the apiary. That's a simplistic view of it, but it's a pretty compelling way to think of it. Is this an effective way to go? Only time will tell. I suppose given the press release origin, one might follow the stock and see how it's going to do, and that could be an indicator. If it does truly take off, it could be disruptive to farming practices, and it's easily extensible to other products. Blueberries, apples, and other pollinated products are also sprayed with fungicides, and why stop at the almonds? The company has a product termed C R seven that is being used for blueberries and strawberries and they have some capital investors to venture this thing. I point this out because so many times technologies like this come to be, but the funding that take them to a viable product often falls short, and they never really fully realize what whether or not the approach is viable because they just run out of funding. It's not because of feasibility, but because funding to bear out the results is ridiculously expensive. You not only have to get approval, make the product, manufacture it, test it in the field, document the testing, and go through all of that in order to make it viable. It's it's a mess. Such an interesting business dynamic that we talk about here every once in a while. Uh, this is for the beekeeping curious, just another side area of beekeeping to keep a watch on to learn from. The company will be gathering the data from this season and forecast it. It is forecasted that they should have some results to post come, say, October later in the year. Researchers who are looking for ways to deliver miticides have explored this. And I would imagine anybody that's in this arena is going to watch how this is working. If you can get the bees to deposit out, I'd imagine you can get them, again, to prove that thing they were trying to do before, carry in. So, ironically, you have to just put a pin in that too when we get to the topic in this episode. But I'll get to that later. I'll have a link in the show note for two things b Vectoring Technologies announces ongoing 2022 almond trials in California. And EPA approves the first ever fungicide applied by bees in the show notes for this show. <laughs> you know, I have to share this. I said to Sharon, I'm going to talk about bee vectoring on the program. What's your victor vector is what you said back to me. You know, from that day forward, Jenny and I were always together. Kind of like peas and carrots. (laughs) All right, next topic. (laughs) Round table number two, not so wonderful. I'm not a fan of high school style humor. Just stuff that's not funny to me. Yet the topic matter I'm about to enter into is a bit risque, so it becomes fodder for feeble minds. It is without that opening that I share that there was this product. There is this product on the marketplace called Wonderful Honey for Men, which is being sold as a product for sexual enhancement in the bedroom. Turns out the FDA took issue with the product as it had a secret ingredient that wasn't supposed to be in there. Sildenafil, better known by its commercial trade name Viagra, billed as a product that has B- Products listed from the advertisement: pure natural honey, bee pollen, royal jelly. They're coupled with ginseng, tangan ali, whatever that is, all combined with other natural ingredients to provide, among other things, strengthened physical fitness and ability, enhanced vitality and potency on a daily basis, boosting energy level and physical performance. improved circulation oh and it strengthens the immune system and other things that uh, improve your performance the funny thing about this is honey and products of the hive have always been associated through the ages through millennia with fertility and vigor but to my knowledge no one has snuck in the added ingredients for an ED medicine as part of the elixir This is, of course, a serious matter as the added ingredient does pose a health risk and could cause cardiovascular events for the consumers. So no joke, it's being recalled by the FDA and they even have advised consumers not to purchase this stuff going forward. The telling thing, and I'm going to somehow make the connection for cottage law topic that I've been covering as of late is that government agencies seem to help and hinder in ways that befuddle me sometimes. But in this case, it kind of says that the FDA does not always test all the products. If they're given a quote unquote, all natural label it seems it lets them be sold with disclaimers but every once in a while it keeps the marketplace true by double checking them and in this case they found that they were skirting the law now cottage laws drawing the connection are there to protect consumers from cooks who either don't know what they're doing or are doing unscrupulous things and the tie between the two here is that honey in a supplement And what is, in essence, a variation on a food product is fodder for conversation in a roundabout way. I think we beekeepers can revel in the benefits of our own wares and forgo anything that tries to extrapolate the goodness of the bees for their sales angle. There's no accounting for advertising schemes, and this one can be chalked up literally as snake oil. Roundtable number three called us one ring the bell. Every once in a while, I stick something in the show just for historical note. And in the opening of the show, I made light of something that's actually not funny, but humor is somehow a means for coping with things. This past weekend, we opened our beekeeping season with a live field meeting at the Valleycrest Farms for the Northwest Beekeepers Association. It was a somewhat typical start of spring with new beekeepers in white suits joining us for the start of the new season. It was not a particularly nice day weather-wise. Cold, damp, raining with a stiff gust of wind blowing here and there. This spring has been peppered with a storm system a week through the month of March and now into April. And this past Saturday, a weather system rolled through from the south and went past us on the overnight. There was some discussion as to if the meeting would be postponed, but we soldiered on, even with light attendance we delivered the program. One thing that was done to compensate for the weather was to put up some pop-up tents over the colonies we were working in case a stray shower blew through. And it was raining when we got there, but only a light pattern. Soon enough, the remnants of the system blew through, and we were seeing peaks of sun. Again, cold, damp, chilly, we decided to pick up one of the easy-up tents and move it off to the side of the apiary so that the hives we were working could take advantage of the sun, which was now shining. The tent was placed off to the periphery of the apiary, and there were four large rocks placed at the feet of the post to keep them anchored. Everyone in attendance gathered around pad number four for a package install, and I stepped back to take a photo with my phone when it hit me. Literally. I remember raising my phone up, opening the photo app, raising my arms and reaching out for the button to snap off a shot, and then I was on the ground. A gust of wind picked up the tent behind us, overpowered the rocks that were anchoring the posts. One of the posts clocked me on the side of the head, And at one moment I was taking a photo and the next minute I recall being on the ground and thinking my knee, my elbow, and my shoulder are wet. And I'm not sure what that's about, but I think I need to get up. Turns out, one of the posts from the tent hit me squarely on the side of the head. And it's an understatement to say it thumped me pretty good. I was seeing stars and as to the title of the episode, Head Knocker, it rung my bell. I had that glazed over, oh crap, here we go sensation again in my head. The participants were all over at the hive, recognized what happened, collected the tent, and one of them helped me up to the ground. They were all facing the hive, so no one knew what had actually happened. It didn't register them while I was face down in the grass. I spent the rest of the meeting in a stupor, stunned. Blossing a massive, blossoming, a massive headache, Uh, by the way. That's just a little sign of where we are. Now, given I have experience with a head injury in my past, my immediate response was an incredulity that it happened again. In that moment, I was really just furious. The blow struck my head over the right ear and the swelling from the hematoma just went down a couple days ago. The sensation of being struck was that of being thunked on the head with a baseball bat and not gently. Now, it's been a week and a day dealing with concussion-like symptoms and I took off from work on Monday and Tuesday to try and recover because I was dealing with bounce of nausea, headache, dizziness, a feeling of a sensation of a wicked hangover without the booze in my lifetime this is the fourth major concussion that i know of i had two when i wrestled in high school and one prior to the beekeeping trip i took in africa in 2019 and now this one what frustrates me is the possibility of lingering impacts to my well-being for the long term I listened to a discussion about head injuries recently on a podcast and the person described their mental state after their encounters and recovery with post-concussion syndrome in a way that they were person 2.0, meaning after they came out of the period of recovery, they're not the same person they were. I could tell you from the 19 incident, I can identify with that. I find that I do not have the sharpness in processing things real time like I've had in the past. It's in there, but boy, it takes a longer time to bring it to the surface. I find that with work, with life, with this show. Even just a moment ago, you heard me stumble, that's part of that. I have to compensate by being better prepared and I'm not as good as I once was at doing things off the cuff, but yeah, I'm still okay and functional. I give myself a little credit as my lifelong pursuit has ingrained different things in me, and they come naturally, but my ability to absorb and process things is different these days. It's kind of funny how things go, and I made a secret pact in my proceedings to avoid doing anything in life after the 19 incident that could lead to further head injuries, and lo and behold, it found me anyway. I'm in a period of recovery, and I feel like it's going to take... A couple months like last time. I might be a touch off my game. It did take me, I think, three months last time to get right with the world, to shed the lingering effects, and I have to be honest, this week was tough. Yesterday I went over and visited Bob Kloss, and I physically had to take a knee. Every time I bend over, especially, I get just super woozy, lightheaded. Yeah, yesterday was tough, man. Imagine waking up every morning with a fog-of-war sensation of dull headache and hang systems. It's been no picnic. I'm going to monitor my well-being and look for steady improvement per the guidance I got last time, since I'm well-versed at this. And if the lingering effects don't abate like they should, I'm going to consult a specialist specialist, like somebody that really deals with this type of post-concussion thing, this is not a woe is me moment. It's just a recap of a little bad news. And as you'll hear when it comes to beekeeping, I'm not going to let this set me back, but it might slow me down a little bit this spring season. And boy, talk about timing. One day at a time. To end this on a more positive note, I feel like the meaning was a success. <laughs> and what we covered was the most useful thing to those in attendance. They got what they needed. And, you know, we'll continue with our training program and. At least there's some happy, shining moment from the thing that occurred, and we'll move on. Roundtable number four called this one Paradise RTFM. This roundtable is a reflection on something I shared in the bonus episode for how to do a dead-out, or CSI, from the hives that didn't make it through. Etienne Tardif wrote an email to me on the learning that I shared about the 8-frame polystyrene hives I have deployed last summer not making it over winter. My finding from the review was that the colony suffered from moisture problems and they would have been it would have benefited them to have additional ventilation. And to be clear, I was experimenting with the concept of a closed high system, meaning the only air exchange was at the base much like a real tree that has only one hole. Now, evidence suggests that for these hives, the bees didn't manage the environment fully. And as a result, you know, obviously they were impacted. They didn't make it through and they were hampered by how I set them up. I did this experiment to simply learn if the hive would overwinter, having complete control of the climate with the setup fully sealed on purpose. And to be honest, I didn't think the bees would have a problem with this. Or I would obviously not have put them in that jeopardy and I truly wasn't expecting the outcome. I'm full disclosure 99% of the time on this show and given what happened I'm happy that I shared what Etienne picked up on and he had some additional thoughts on what had made taken place. They have experience in the Yukon with us and they found that if you put wood to the outside it tends to hamper some of that uh, moisture problem. And he pointed out, rightfully so, that if you go through and look at the content, this is RTFM. You ever hear that term? If you have, you're chuckling. Read the manual. (laughs) You can imagine what the F stands for. The simplest thing is to understand what the manufacturer tells because they have the most experience with this, and the manufacturer wants you to leave the entrance open. They made it a screened bottom board, which they are, for a reason. So, inherently, they have screened bottom boards, and I purposely close them off as part of my test. The manufacturer instructions say, and I quote, Generally, the screen bottom is kept open. And they go further on to say, quote, the ventilation through the mesh improves wintering results, end quote. So there is that. I still think that uh, you could look at Etienne's research and he, I've read before that he compensated by creating follower boards on the outside. If I could use that term or shims or I, I don't know what the right thing to call them. In order to correct that zone of moisture to the outside of these hives a polystyrene hive to me is a lot like a tree but I wonder if a tree wicks away the moisture from the inner cavity if you think about a tree it has the cambium of water going up and down and also the thickness of the tree which creates the insulation unlike a polystyrene hive where i don't think water passes through it it's going to collect at the surface itself and i think if i'm reading what etienne said if you put wood there the wood absorbs the moisture and it doesn't collect and run down the sides and get to the bees whatever the case my strategy is probably more like create a shim at the top and put a front entrance that has a hole so that the air can circulate through the entrance Up through the colony and out the hole and take the moisture with it much the same way as I said before about putting a rock underneath the inner cover of a traditional wooden hive so just wanted to share that thought and thanks Etienne for writing in I'm reviewing what you wrote and I'll take that into consideration as uh, you know we continue to figure out how to use these hives I have already put bees in the eight frames um, for the season, as you'll hear, and I expect that they'll do perfectly fine. RTFM, folks, RTFM. Roundtable number five, I call this He Who Will Not Be Named. The title's a little cheeky inside joke that only a small number of folks will grasp, so please afford me the indulgence, but the topic is Rather interesting, a certain someone shared an email with me about a question which turns out has a funny answer. It's about beekeeping biology, so what's not to love? It's kind of like one of those Jeopardy-esque pop quiz moments, something you might find on a master beekeeper's test. We know that brood pheromone plays a role in the operation of the colony, but did you ever stop to think where does brood pheromone come from? That is the question post, and if you ruminate on the idea, that thing swimming around in the food at the bottom of the cell is not a fully developed bee with adult glands and such, then yeah, where does brood pheromone emanate from? I'll give you the Jeopardy! moment to think on that one. Before I give you the answer, I'm going to share that I got it wrong. <laughs> i read the question from an email and while making my morning coffee i postulated the incorrect answer my guess was that maybe it came from the process of the larva molting that through the subsequent growth phases called instars for insects something was given off from the cuticle Uh, nice guess jerry tell kevin what he's won in his consolation prize so, the answer is it comes from the salivary gland of the larva. Turns out that it's functioning and saliva given off is what provides the odor that is part of the pheromone communication system. To review more about the concept, you could pull up the research paper titled. Larval salivary glands are a source of primer and releaser pheromone in honey bee, Apis mellifera L. That's Apis mellifera linguistica. If you were to pursue the Yves LeConte research, you would note a few interesting factoids about bees, and one in particular that I did not know about until looking the results over that, quote, To date, the honeybee is the only social insect species in which a brood pheromone has been identified, I will take a moment not to pass by something, and it has to do with the title. It included the declaration that there are primer and releaser pheromones. Hearing that, you might wonder what actually are they? By my way of understanding, a primer and a releaser Releaser and primer pheromones are pheromones that are chemical signals that result in a specific behavior that is termed to have two different effects. Releaser pheromones, sometimes referred to as rapid pheromones, are those instances where chemical communication requires a quick response, while primer pheromones are released to have long-term and lasting effect on the receiving entity. There are two forms of the response to these chemical cues, negative and positive. Let me give you some examples. Negative reception will be a chemical signal that's meant to thwart or abate a certain response. An example of a negative response will be the queen substance chemical thwarting worker reproduction. As long as they're getting queen substance, they will not attempt worker reproduction. Now, if there's a negative, there's a positive. Positive reception is meant to encourage a specific response. Now we get to releaser or rapid pheromones. Pheromones that cause a rapid change in behavior are termed releaser pheromones. You can think of these as, I need something. Uh, Retinue behavior. Queen releases a pheromone. They all come rushing to her aid. Swarm clustering. They release a pheromone. Everybody swarms together and comes in the cluster. Drone attraction for mating. I'm giving off the scent as the queen. The drones are chasing me. Pheromones that cause slower long-term effects on physiology and behavior are the recipient of primer pheromone. I skipped positive ones before, but let me cover them, and then we'll go back to our topic. Comb building. Cleaning. Guarding foraging and brood feeding they're all positive primer long-term pheromone releases so taking this back to our larva pheromone example in the salivary gland the presence of fatty acids and esters from the saliva give a chemical impression to the workers that trigger certain activities that relate to brood rearing brood feeding It plays a role in workers recognizing the larval's age and needs and when to cap off the cells. And it might play a role in triggering the workers' hyperpharyngeal glands so that they develop to feed the brood. It's such an interesting thing to dig in on. And sometimes you wonder how the superorganism just got wired to be able to do all this. I kind of think of it like a how it's made, or factory tour. If you could delve down to see the machines in the TV show and figure out, well, how do they bake something, or how do they wrap something, or it's the coolest thing you learn when you watch these shows. Well, we're at the sub level in the hive of how does a bee get fed and signal a cat me and all that stuff. As to how they pinned it down to the salivary gland, well, if you think about larva logically, it has a front end, and it has a back end, and it has an outer surface to the cuticle. They know that the fatty acids and esters were figured out, that those things played a role, and they simply did the math. They looked for those chemical traces on the larva where they were. They weren't on the surface, and they weren't exiting the posterior so it was logical to look at the mouth parts and by process of elimination it seems that the esters were found on the front end and they were able to pinpoint that the glands that were in play were the ones at the front salivary glands that's the type of gland a larva has so it's the salivary gland isn't that kind of cool there's one other tidbit to share and it has to do with the trigger that they suspect might play a role in the capping During the course of research, they discerned that the esters detected were most important at the fifth instar range of bee development. If you're like me, that word popped up again and you're probably wondering what an instar refers to. Instar is defined as a phase between two periods of molting in the development of insect larvae or other invertebrate animals. To be clear, when a honeybee develops, it goes through six molts and five instars. The takeaway here is the fifth instar is the one before she starts to develop as an adult. At the fifth instar, the larva forms the silk cocoon. And at the time of the paper was written, this was in 2006, they were postulating that perhaps the more prevalent release of esters from the larva were mixed into the cocoon in some way. And that triggered something in the workers that leads to the cell being capped. If I think out loud and try to connect all the dots, I wonder if this is the chemical attraction that signals the varroa mite that you only have a short period of time to get into the cell before they close it off. Isn't it kind of cool how they figure these things out? I'll have a link to the paper in the show notes in case you want to look further. And in the end, brood pheromone can be chalked up to larvigyrel Who knew? (laughs) To that who will not be named. Thanks for passing this along. Roundtable number six, Commander. I'm a sucker for a good backstory, and I recently found my way to a video from the inventor of Swarm Commander. This is a relevant topic at this time, as it is swarm season. If you have your bait hives out there for catching swarms, then one of the two items to give your swarm trap a little shot of. Swarm commander or some sort of scent to make an, an attractant. This presupposes that you use the spray and not the vials. I personally have only used the vials once or twice. If you are a vial devotee then the way you apply that product is to take a q-tip, add a dab, and swab it at the front entrance. And you swab the inside of the box one or two spots you'll get enough in the vial to do that two or three uses. Whether using the spray or dabbing from the vial you're going to return to the bait hive every seven to ten days to recharge the scent. I learned from the video that there's a third form of swarm commander that somehow slipped by me. They have a gel version And its premise is you run a bead of gel, quarter-inch to a half-inch spot in a few spots in the hive. And the slow-release gel will last up to 20 days. The last product is a different category that the company uses to produce a similar effect. It's called a lure. So you have the spray, you have the dab-on vial, you have the gel and they also make a lure kind of reminds me of the premise of the good old green tree thing you used to hang from your mirror back in the 70s and 80s the device is going to last a season and it does not need to be replenished so swarm commander has a bunch of different products for your use at this time of year to get the backstory aspect of this the inventor of was the presenter of the content of the video that I'll have a link to in the show notes. And if I have it right, his name is Scott Derrick. Scott told of his background that he worked in industry where chemicals were employed. He was someone who worked in the flavoring and fragrances aspect. And he had a background with fragrance houses, flavor houses, that parlayed into him having the expertise to go out and build this product. Ah, oh, Kevin moment. Some brings me back to my childhood. There was a flavor house company on Church Street in Flemington called Presco Foods that used to make spice blends for Lipton products. There was a major production hub for the Lipton company in the Flemington area once upon a time. The flavor house building was only blocks from where we grew up. And it was right near the baseball fields we haunted as kids. On any given day, depending on what they were concocting and the way the wind was blowing, you might smell the fragrances of Lipton soup or some other flavor mixes in the air. One of my favorites was the flavoring for chicken soup or better yet, it smelled like chicken flavored rice of brownie. One of my favorite vices as a kid, and that's not a product of Lipton, by the way. In prepping this little ditty, I figured out that Presco is still in Flemington off a of mini road. So who knew? And it makes me wonder if Scott, the flavoring and fragrance guy ever got into the arena of coming to Flemington to visit our hometown and go to Presco foods. But I digress and of Kevin moment in the video, he emphatically answered the question as to the chemical makeup of the product. He has repeatedly being asked if the product is based on lemongrass, He made it clear that it is not lemongrass. He did suggest that they analyzed pheromone components of the bee and lemongrass and came up with a formulation, and yes, there are similar chemical compounds, similar constituents, but it's not based on lemongrass. You know, while we're on this topic, uh, Swarm Commander, it's a great product. Let me talk about Swarm Traps. Uh, It's not lost on me that we've just crossed April 15th, which is the beginning of the traditional swarm session, swarm season here in New Jersey, based on our metrics. If you think about swarm season, what do people always do? They talk about handcrafted swarm bait hive boxes, purposely built, right volume and parameters for swarms to move in. And this is the time of year where that notion is being promoted all over the web. How to build swarm traps, deploy them. Much of the guidance on that was popularized by none other than Tom Seely, Not a naysayer of the moment. And the science that backs up all the assertions of the devotees. But I have found, at least by my way of thinking that this is a bit of overkill. I wish to be careful here. This is personal experience, not an expert opinion. Yeah, okay. (laughs) I agree with Tom. I agree with, you know, those out there who are doing great work at promoting how to do swarm trapping and all of that. But I've come to believe that a vessel is a vessel. And with some drawn comb and the magical few sprays of Swarm Commander, swarms move in. Over the past number of years, I just simply set boxes out around the property with old brood comb and sprayed them with Swarm Commander with great success. Would I do better with proper swarm traps set high up and far away from the apiary? Maybe, but I've come to realize that if I simply set boxes out with old comb and spray them with Swarm Commander, they move in and I don't have to get a ladder out. Last year, when I do the math, I was seven for six. Odd, odd number, I know. What I mean is I put six boxes out and six colonies moved in. For one of the early ones, I took the colony out, put it in a in a hive box, put the hive back out in the yard, and another one moved in. Now last year was a unicorn year for swarm captures and it almost seemed that if you stood out with a bucket and a whistled, and a whistle, and whistled out loud, (laughs) they would get in the box. That's a stupid exaggeration, but I say that to say that it was really an exceptional year for swarm captures. And you might ask yourself, am I capturing all my own swarms in my own yard? I don't think so. I think they're coming from far and abroad. I've documented many times that there's beehives all around us. And maybe they're coming from the trees in the neighborhood. You know, I did have a couple swarms fly away. Physically watched them fly away last year, so I can't say that some of them might have been mine. But uh, I, I'm pretty confident that only two of my 13 hives swarmed last year. And I was home every day watching them, so I, I know what the state they were in. I put out five boxes this year, and I have that magic swarm trap in my breezeway. Given we're past April 15th, our traditional startup swarm season here in New Jersey let the games begin. I have to say thanks to, to Scott Derrick for his service to beekeepers. I always reiterate that we are most fortunate to have the services of his craft, and others to make these products commercially available to us. For who doesn't like freebies? See the link to the video, How to Use Swarm Commander, Premium Swarm Lore, in the show notes. It's a good one to watch. Roundtables are done. Let's go into topic number one. I call this one interpretation. It's about... Sub-lethal effects on bees, what really is going on. So why this episode? It's serendipity. No agenda, no digging in on something. I had an article from Bee Culture stashed away in my someday maybe read list. Just got to it. The topic was written by Clarence Cowleson, and it's entitled A Closer Look, Colon, Bee Health and Pesticides, Period. I love Clarence's work, and whenever I have a bee culture in my hand, it's the first thing I turn to. As to what Clarence writes, I must admit half the time it's over my head. I'm just a simple man with a simple vocabulary, and most times the expression of the science jargon and technical terms have me stopping about every fifth word to look something up so I can read the passage with meaning. I'm just a bit stubborn, and when I want to learn something, if I don't get it first go-round, I'll read the whole thing, try to absorb as much as I can, but I'm going to put it away, and I'm going to come back later and deconstruct it, and you're about to go on that journey with me. To the point of this article, I spent some time the other day looking through it, pre-head injury, I might add, and trying to make sense of it. Primarily, I've been on the bandwagon for benefits of fresh comb, And I think that one of the particular aspects of this campaign requires unpacking uh, pesticide exposure for the bees. It's absorbed in the comb. And how does that actually, actually harm the bee? That's the thing I wanted to learn. And I thought this article was going to give it to me. But in reading it, I didn't understand it. Now, this article is a bit old, and ironically, some of the chemical nasties that surface in the analysis of what was found is beekeeper-inflicted, as you'll hear me uncover and unpack. It points out that cumaphos and fluvalinate, two chemicals present in recycled wax used to manufacture foundation that we buy from bee suppliers, is in the analysis results because beekeepers used them for raw of my treatments back in that day. And they kept hanging around. It's a Kevin moment that I've raised in the past. Do these chemicals still persist in our wax we buy today in 2022? I asked this back in the day of one of the noted researchers a few years back. I think I wanted to say it was Marianne Fraser. Just how long are we going to suffer for our sins? The short answer was apparently no one is sure. It's an interesting question. Does our current foundation still have remnants of those harmful chemicals from back in the day? Inquiring minds want to know. That's an end of that Kevin moment recall. Let me spend a moment conveying the passage in the article that I thought was the most germane to the topic. And then I'll tell you my intent. This is the quote from the passage. Quote, Pesticides do have effects on immunity. Organophosphates and some botanicals have been found to impact hemocyte number differentiation and thus phagocytosis. The phenyl oxidase cascade and melanization have also been shown to be affected by several insecticides. Many synthetic insecticides increase oxidative stress And this could have severe impacts on the production of some antimicrobial peptides, end quote. The article follows suit with the same, forgive me, Clarence, technical babble. And by my way of thinking, that passage in itself is a little daunting, and I have no idea what it's trying to tell me. At the lower level, I get the gist of it, but I just don't understand what all those things were that just went past. Still, if we want to grasp the information, and I bet you do too, you finally have to take time, I have finally taken time, to analyze what was written and what is to follow as my attempted shot at breaking it down, Barney style. In the next few minutes, I'll do my best to convey what I think it all means. And the article, like most research approaches, opens with a summary of impacts that I think we need to start with as our foundation. To me, the imperative phrase in the opening is what was cited in Chauzet, C-H-A-U-Z-E-T et al. I believe that's how you say it from 2009. It's talking about chemicals present in the hive. This was in the opening, which set the foundation for the rest of what Clarence presented. Quote, These chemicals may affect the synthesis, transport, action, or elimination of natural molecules such as hormones or enzymes that are responsible for maintaining bee development, immune mechanisms, and behavior, End quote. That one's not terribly hard to follow, and it does a nice job of setting the stage of why this topic matters. In looking at it, we know that the heart of the superorganism That is, the colony is the individual bee, and if the development, the health of the bee are at risk, then the system's broken. The next passage establishes that bees are developing in the comb, and then it has high levels of pesticide residues and acaricides. And it should be noted, while the comb is often cited as a key factor, the article in a different passage stated that, quote, pesticide residues levels were determined in honey, pollen collected by the bees, beeswax, and bees, end quote. I'm not looking to rewrite their narrative with that, just pointing out that in the greater concern for beekeepers, comb is important, but yeah, there's other things at play. Going back to what I said before, think of all the acaricides as the self-inflicted chemical compounds we beekeepers put in the hive to combat mites. Acaricide is something that kills Mites, the aforementioned kumaphos and fluvalinate, were old forms of roamite treatments that beekeepers used in older days, in case you haven't been engaged in beekeeping long enough to know that. The passage contains leads to the crux of the situation outlined in problem statements deeper in the research paper. In short, it says, I'm just going to do these as a bulleted list. First bullet. It sums this up by saying the development of the bees reared in contaminated environments are compromised. And that bees impacted during development were observed to have shorter lifespans. There was also an observation of brood mortality, meaning they died more often. And subsequent exposures to levels that may not kill the developing bees that's called sublethal, will still impact the bees and result in changes, this is important, in the way the hive operates. Those things tell us the art of the possible for overall colony health. But coming back to the point of why I wanted to know what Clarence was telling us, what about the bees? What about the physical manifestation of the chemicals on the individual bees? I've always wanted to understand what goes wrong. What's wrong with the actual bee? If I skip ahead, I can find kind of what I was looking for. There are references to the biological impact to the individual bees. And what I'm going to do is share the statements that I found and then try to interpret them. I'm going to pick key parts of this and not quote directly word for word what it said for brevity. It could be said at this point, I'll have a link to the full piece in the show notes. If you want to read along, it's available on beculture.com. And thanks to them for leaving that out there. And again, some of this is paraphrased for brevity. Number one, pesticides have effects on immunity. Organophosphates and some botanicals have been found to impact hemocyte number, differentiation, and thus affect phagocytosis. Number two. The phenyl oxidase cascade and the melanization have been shown to be affected by several insecticides. Number three. Many synthetic insecticides increase oxidative stress, and this could have severe impacts on the production of some antimicrobial peptides. And number four, pesticides can also affect grooming behaviors, rendering bees more susceptible to disease. Now, I want to work that backwards. That last statement didn't need translation, so let's just get that one out of the way. Think about it, if bees do not somehow groom themselves effectively, it's surmised that they're more susceptible to disease. Grooming to bees is like us cleaning the grime off of our skin. Less groom results and leads to more susceptibility for disease. Last one, check. Number four, out of the way. Turning to the first clause. Before I get started, I have to say, I have no idea what I'm talking about. I just want to be clear. I've tried my best to look up all these different terms and interpret them. I could be completely wrong and off, but I don't think I'm that far off. I've looked through things somewhat extensively in trying to figure this out. And if I'm not right, I'm in the ballpark. At least I think I am. And if I'm not, I'm positive and hopeful that someone will write in and clear this up for us as we're all trying to learn this together. Okay, first clause. Organophosphates impact hemocyte numbers, differentiation, and thus affect phagocytosis. It can be broken down in this way as far as I understand it. Hemocyte refers to something like a blood cell. And my take is, just like you can analyze a human's blood and determine if it's healthy, bees don't have blood, they have hemolymph. And it too can be measured, and if the numbers are off, it's having problems. I take differentiation to mean just what it infers. Something is different from what it should be. According to some research I found, phagocytosis is a process wherein cells bind to the item they want to engulf on the cell surface, and they draw the item inward while surrounding it. And the process of phagocytosis often happens when a cell is trying to destroy something, like a virus or infected cell or something. It's often used by immune system cells. That's what I'm picturing. My takeaway for statement one is, and whether I got that right or wrong, I think this is right. Pesticides cause the insect hemolymph, which is analogous to blood in humans, if you're not clear, to be abnormal or just it's not functioning the way it's supposed to. It's supposed to do something when something bad's floating around in it some sort of chain events is occurring and pesticides are interfering with that. Essentially into the point of the article, the immunity system in the bee is compromised and not working as nature intended to due to interference from the presence of the harmful chemicals. Now the next clause to examine is clause number 2. The phenol oxidase cascade and melanization have also been shown to be affected by several insecticides this one's a little more complicated phenol oxidase is another immunity tactic employed by insects and it's a pathway to immune system response it's a complicated thing and again if i have this right and it's possible that i'm skirting the facts here it is in essence a process to trigger an immune response to explain this i need to interject some more terminology First off, phenyl oxidases are present in an insect's hemolymph and are expressed, according to science, as inactive zymogens. To carry that further, a zymogen is an inactive substance which is converted into an enzyme when activated by another enzyme. That's as deep as I'm going to go. And by what I looked at, you could really go down the rabbit hole. But it suffices to say that a bee has a series of immune response enzymes that when triggered will cascade to several chemical reactions that manifest an immune response in the insect. In the case of this, they're talking about something termed melanization. Melanization is triggered for mainly two purposes in insects by my way of understanding microbial intruders and for the repair of tissue from mechanical issues now some of the diagrams i reviewed that talked about this cascade demonstrates that a chemical reaction blossoms from the cascade that led to melanization if i could describe to you the diagrams that i saw it's a chain of events things like lps PGN, PAMPSs, serpents, tyrosine, tyrosin I don't even know how to say it. These things are the cascade of enzymes and things that happen as part of what is the formation of substrates that are going to attack the pathogen that's in there and hopefully kill them off or render them no good, not functional. In the research of the cascades that I saw, it indicates three things happen in an insect. Melanin formation, cytotoxic products, and encapsulation to pathogens. Again, I'm not a scientist and I don't have the smart wherewithal to know whether I've got all of that right. But if I come back to it, there's a word that we keep talking about, melanin. Melanization. If it sounds familiar, it's not too far off from melaninization formation that causes things to occur in humans. And this is where the aha moment came for me. I don't want to misguide you. I'm going to draw an analogy. The expression of sunshine on our skin leads to some immune reaction that triggers the formation of melanin pigments that block out the sun's harmful rays and cause us to tan. One side effect of the cascade in humans when being bombarded with sunshine is to make the pigment. And that's an immune system melanization process that causes that. Now take that idea and apply it to what we're talking about. The takeaway is the presence of the insecticides, harmful, and pesticides, harmful, in the hemolymph causes some sort of cascade of enzymes to respond to that, and it's not being completed. It's a form of immune compromise. It interferes with the cascade, and the responses to fix your immune doesn't happen. Okay, one more phrase to go. Many synthetic insecticides... Increase oxidative stress, and this could have severe impacts on the production of some antimicrobial peptides. Last one. Given how complicated the last one was, I want to keep this one a little more succinct. I have to imagine that we humans hear the utterance of healthy antioxidants once a week in our daily lives. When I was a kid, it was an unknown entity to me. But now if I say that phrase, antioxidant, just about everyone would not say what's an antioxidant. The funny thing is, my sense is we know the word, but we have no idea what it stands for. We know from repeated marketing that antioxidants equal something that's good for us. I'm going to read a statement from some research that I found that sets the stage for us to understand at a high level what this antioxidant thing is about without killing us with science. These are two clauses pulled from the same research, so to be clear, they were not written as one statement the way I'm presenting them, but they're kind of like bookends, so I put them together. Quote, Oxidative stress is the result of an uncontrolled buildup of reactive oxygen species in an aerobic organism. These reactive oxygen species are dangerous because they are capable of damaging proteins, DNA, and cell walls. End quote. If I'm not mistaken, but I could find something that said this outright, the uncontrolled buildup passage is sometimes associated with other things that the marketing tells us antioxidants are good for. The takedown of free radicals, whatever they are. And at this point, you think I'd breathe a sigh of relief that I'm not going to try and figure that out. I'm not (laughs) going to tell you what a free radical is. So where do we stand? It took all that work to break down four clauses in a research paper, and somewhere in this world, a researcher is crying in a towel about my ham-handed way of making an attempt at expressing what really happens, and for that, I'm sorry. What I'm not sorry for is something that is not ham-handed, and that is the takeaway. If you get nothing from this passage other than pesticides and things that we're putting in the hive, acaricides, reside in comb that is harmful to bees, then it's mission accomplished. We beekeepers are probably clear that pesticides sprayed out on the fields kills bugs. They kill the target bugs for which they were designed. They don't necessarily kill our bees, at least not outright. Our bees have adapted over millennia to deal with plant poisons. There are some bugs that can't go to a plant and die because the plant exudes something that kills them, but our bees have learned to live with that but they're not dealing well with man-made pesticides. When they bring that stuff back to the hive, they can tolerate it in small doses, but over time, unfortunately, it impacts the bees, and that is the essence of sublethal, meaning it won't kill them outright, but exposure buildup over time will harm them, and bad enough, it's plausible that it could kill them. Bees encounter pesticides in the wild, and we beekeepers have a legacy of ongoing pattern of introducing our own chemicals while trying to fight varroa mites and that's really a disservice to the bees wherever we can keep those chemicals out the better they would be so at minimum we can help the situation by rotating out old contaminated comb it's a bit of work but it's worth it for healthier bees you want to write the year that you put the comb into service on the top of your frames with a sharpie And three to four years from now, cull it, refresh it, get it out of there. There is an aspect of this that was in the article from Clarence that has to be said before this is closed down. We have to recognize that this phenomena we've been discussing, sublethal effects on residues can impact immune health of our bees, gets a one-two punch because it opens a door for even sicker bees when paired with varroa mites what they vector into the bees in the form of a wound isn't healing of a wound part of the immune system isn't the side effect of the viruses that the vectors are placing in the bees from the mites chewing on them fixed by the immune system all this stuff in our comb comes down to bee health, two or more important things is to keep the comb clean, keep the varroa mite populations down. We can't stop all the impacts of the bees, but for the time being, we can do our best to get the greatest population a reasonable start. That's really the important part. The, The larger population of healthy bees means the immunization of the, not immunization, the longevity of the superorganism is going to be better off. The one person who talks about this all the time, Randy Oliver. If you've ever watched Randy Oliver, he talks about the economical threshold. Damage done to the bees by the overall impacts to them. Once it gets to straw breaks the camel's back, that's almost in the undertone of everything that Randy talks about. It's a fascinating thing now that you can draw the connection. I'll have a link to a closer look, bee health and pesticides that article from Bee Culture in the show notes, as you'd imagine. So we're at the bottom of the stack, and that means uh, time to turn to the local hive report. I'm just going to go through every colony. First time this year, I'll do a summary of what's going on and what the makeup is. Uh, Pad number one. It's a six-frame polystyrene hive with saskatraz bees in it. I pulled it yesterday with Bob Kloss. We sometimes uh, look for different stock. He gets different queens. I was able to get a Russian hive last year. Gave him a, a split of that colony so he had Russian bees in his yard and so on. Bob had a saskatraz, Saskatchewan colony in his yard and it it overwintered and did well so we made a walkaway split of it because it was almost at the bursting at the seams to swarm this year and I brought a package home so to speak we know that we left him with the queen we went through the colony before we separated it so in essence it's like a walkaway split relocated in my yard and hopefully it will requeen itself in good order Pad number two is the 10-frame polystyrene hive. It's two deeps. It's a full colony all the way through. They've got plenty of resources. That colony is going to require two honey boxes this week, or it's at risk for swarming. It just got moved into the 10-frame poly from a six-frame, and it's good to go. Pad number three, there's nothing on it. Pad number four, this is a new colony. It was the double-deep cedar hive with the flow hive on top that colony did not ever winter quite frankly i'm happy about that that was the nastiest colony i had in the yard every time we opened that box uh, bob was with me on a couple times i think it's just nasty as could be and it perished i cleaned the equipment up and now it's a double deep langstroth and in it it has a half a box of russian bees more on that in a second I did put the flow hive back on top of it because it's full of honey from last year. And I'm hoping that when the colony builds to full and they warm that up, I will open the gates and extrapolate that. More on that some other time. Pad number five is a four box all medium hive. This thing's a beast. I have not been in it yet, but I could tell by the way it's flying. This is the one that... I made a split from last year because it was growing so fast. I just gave a box to Bob Kloss. We were in those bees at Bob's house yesterday and the thing looks great. It built out to a full colony, the bees are as gentle as can be, and I'm hoping to do more of the same. If I'm going to make splits this year, that's the the hive I'm going to choose because the bees are really nice to work with. On pad number six is my top bar, overwintered fine have not been in it yet. And I should stop for a moment and talk about that. We've only had one week where we've had warmish days where you could break into the hives, break their seals, go in, dig a little deep, go to the bottom board kind of thing. And I haven't done it yet. Other than the splits that I made, which are walkaways, I did not want to go through. And tomorrow, high of 45 or the next day, with lows down in the 30s. We've got one last week, I think, of nasty weather coming here in April. Now, it's swarm season, and I should have been through my boxes, but I feel like, and talking to other beekeepers, that the season's a little bit behind this year because it's been cold. But trust me when I say this, as soon as it gets warm, there's going to be swarms in the trees all over the place. I have not done anything with the top bar, but I think it went into winter small, and I was wondering whether it was going to make it through, and it did. So, at some point when the weather breaks and we get a couple 70 degree days in a row, I'll go in and take a look and take stock of where it's at. Same could be said for the lion's hive on pad number seven. Didn't know if that was going to make it through, and they did fine. I see the flight at the entrance. It looks like a moderate sized colony. And given what I harvested out of that from honey last year, the last four, five, six frames. I know that that hive has a lot of rebuilding to do to get to the other end of the box. So I think they have plenty of room to grow. And what I also know is that queen last year, she really contracted. She went down to two frames in a 20 frame colony. And then she built to the other end of the wall by the end of summer. So it'll be interesting to see how that goes. And if I do any queen rearing in my yard, that's probably the one I'm going to pull a frame out and harvest the materials. And I do have a notion, maybe this summer, if I can get to it, to do that. Pad number eight was the Russian hive. That was a two deep, one medium, which I never do, but this year I did. Colony that went through winter, sitting on a scale. That hive was bursting, and I did do a full inspection of it and found full complements of brood. No brood, no queen cells, but the thing was stacked. Two deeps full of bees. I made a walk-away split of it. I have no idea who's got the queen, but half of that went to pad number four. In cleaning out my dead outs, I had stored on pad number 12, which didn't make it, two deeps of frames. 20 frames, fully built, good quality, cleaned up, ready to go. Basically what I did with the hive on number eight was split it down the middle. I made sure that The box that I put on pad four on the bottom had some brood in all stages so that they could rear a queen if they didn't get the queen. And I know from my inspection that there were brood in all stages in the bottom box. And I took the boxes off of pad 12, which were sitting in reserve, and just stuck them on top. So now the frames, which were... I count... When I pull up a frame and I look at the face, I give it a grade, one, two, or three. One, one third full, two, two thirds full, three. The entire face is covered. If I could express that probably 16 of the frames in that Russian hive were threes on both sides, that's how many bees were in it. Now, if you take half of that box and you put it on a bottom board and you put a box over top of it, that had no bees, you have enough to fill out both of those boxes and protect and cover the comb and get to work. Now one of them doesn't have a queen and my suspicion is, and this is just a little side note, it's box number four, pad number four. The reason being, if I look at what's going on on pad number eight, which is the original location, they're still flying like crazy. They're foraging, I see pollen going in, Number four is quiet. That makes me think that that's the one that's got a rear queen and they've kind of slowed down and been stymied by the result. Now, the one question I have is, I took a big population and put them in that box and they will dwindle without replenish, but there were several frames of capped brood in there. So they're gonna have a new population to carry them. And over top of them, they have that empty space and there's gonna be cool days next day. I'm hoping that they have enough population that they'll just move past it for a week. They'll they'll deal with it. So walk away split on the Russian hive, and now I'll have two Russians in the apiary. One thing that I will say about them is, yeah, they're a little testy. I hope the new queen that comes about is a little nicer. And if so, I'm also thinking about rearing a new queen for that Russian hive from the Russian stock, And replacing the one that's in there and see if I can get a better temperament. Yesterday, Sharon was cleaning up one of the beds out in front of the house. Which is probably 30 yards from the apiary. And every time she crossed over in this one hedge, the bees were chasing her. I don't know if it was the orange shirt she had on or whatever it was. But she was lamenting to me that this one bee just would not leave her alone. My guess is it's one of those Russian girls. Pad number nine is the queen reared from last year and this too is a eight frame polystyrene hive walkaway split so let me jump ahead one of my three eight frame colonies did make it through and it was stacked from floor to ceiling with bees like the russian hive i just split it in half i didn't have time to pull splits and do all of that stuff and only had one warm day to operate So I went to pad number 11, which was a two-deep eight-frame polystyrene hive, pulled the top box off, made sure that it had brood in all stages, and I put it on a bottom board over in pad number nine. Again, I had eight-frame boxes in reserve with comb, and so I supplied them both with a second box full of comb. Exact same scenario playbook for the Russian hive I did with the eight-frames. Pad number 10 nothing there. Pad number 12, nothing there. There's a little story to tell about the waray hive sitting out in the front. Over the last couple of weeks, I noticed a bunch of bees entering it, not unlike a swarm trap. I thought what they were doing was robbing it, but actually they were sizing it up, and lo and behold, last week, a swarm moved in. First swarm of the season popped itself in and populated the waray box. The waray box has three boxes of full comb and one box down below that needs to be drawn out. Two of the boxes are full of bees now. So the Wari hive repopulated itself. How cool is that? Now the question lies, where did those bees come from? If I had to make an educated guess as to which hive swarmed already, I have three to choose from. The all medium, the top bar, or the lands. I suspect Given the amount of traffic at the entrance and how busy the colony has been from the get-go, as soon as the first flying days go, the all-medium hive gets the win. The other two are just doing okay and commensurate with what I see from the other hives that are moderate in size. But that all-medium hive, my guess is it's very full. I have to admit that I don't love this all-medium format. I just don't. And I'm thinking about splitting it and moving some bees in the all-medium transfer to a full-size colony somehow. I should mention that if you go to youtube.com nwnjba, a Cornell master beekeeper from our association, just did a presentation on how to convert full-size colonies to all mediums, which might be of interest if you are looking to see if you could switch over. Now, in this case, I'm going the opposite direction, trying to get out of some of those mediums and build a full-size colony. And for that, you just split that hive in half since it has four boxes and you put two deeps over top of them. I'm sorry, you put the two mediums over a deep and you let them build out comb from underneath. But if you're interested, check out that Gene Miller presentation. It's one of the newest ones on the Northwest Channel. One last hive to talk about valley Crest. While we were there on the day of the incident, I wandered down and took a look. My double deep there is doing great. Flying like crazy on that cool, wet, crappy day. And I think what I'm going to do is split that hive. I'm going to go over there and split it in half and build two hives out of it and leave them there. That's my plan for that. And maybe next weekend I'll see if I can get to that and hopefully they won't swarm before that. The last thing to share for the local hive report other than all of those colonies are going to run their course for the early part of the season is some queen rearing activity we said we were going to do it earlier I was over to bob's house yesterday for the purpose of building a cell builder we went through his nukes which came through his nuke condo very well and weakened them all because they were all on the verge of swarming by pulling out resources and combining them in a single six frame poly, that is gonna be our cell builder. The other thing that we did was in sourcing out of some of his production colonies, one frame because we needed a little bit more, we put the Nyco device into the middle of a colony and went through his apiary and talked about which bees were what, how they've overwintered, what their traits were, And we selected the one on the end of the line to be the one we're going to graft from so we had a stretching queen i know you don't know what that means but it's a high quality queen of carniolian bees that we want to graft from and we have one that came from a queen that lasted multiple seasons and was extremely prolific that's the one on the end so the short of that is when you're doing queen rearing and you're going to graft, you want to graft from bees that have traits that you want to carry on the bloodline, so to speak. And we're carrying that on. Bob does a really good job at selecting selection and things like that for his queens. So thanks to Bob for, you know, again, the partnership on doing queen rearing. I'm really excited that we're getting started a lot earlier this year and have a pretty organized program. And You know, it's just fun to spend a day in the yard with Bob. I was hurting yesterday. I I just really had a miserable health day with the head thing. But it was still fun to play around in his yard. I love all the hives he has and the way he has it set up. It's, It's like Bob's Bee Emporium, as I call it. Local hive report, that's enough. Check. I know one thing I gotta do is call my brother and see what the heck he's got going on and we'll get to that sometime this week. Closing comments, just um, a couple of reflections to talk about before we close the show out. There's a technology in recording called Punch and Roll where if you have a problem, you can go back and start the recording over at a specific point I have punch and rolled the most I think I've ever done in this episode <laughs> just to try and compensate for my lack of ability to cover things. Boy, I sure hope this gets easier. I wanted to talk about something that uh, has been going around on the internet and it's just disheartening to see. There was a photograph, a uh, side by side of a Ukraine beekeeper. Have you seen this thing? There's a guy standing at a colony holding a frame of bees. With a smirk on his face. Just looks like he's enjoying himself. And to the right he's shown in battle fatigue holding a weapon. The cost of human race and what we do to ourselves sometimes. This just really made the connection of this Ukraine thing going on. And how... I don't even have words for it. He's standing in a blue Adidas t-shirt. And you know... No veil, no whatever, and just looks like somebody who is at one with the bees. And to see the polar opposite on the side, oh boy, I sure hope they can get this thing resolved over there. And What, what a terrible thing human beings stoop to sometimes. On a brighter note, this week I have a bee day planned with a friend. I don't know whether it's going to be Thursday or Friday. He's got a bunch of packages he needs to install and... Uh, I said, you know, I'd go out and lend him a hand. And it's always fun to connect with people who you hang around with. And it's been a while. I called him up the other night just to see how he was doing, what he was up to. We ended up chatting for an hour. And, you know, make friends in beekeeping. It's just a blast to stay connected with them. And if there's somebody you haven't talked to in a while, you know, just pick up the phone or text them, ask them how they're doing, check in with them. And all this COVID thing we've, probably been disconnected and I'm looking forward to even state meetings. There was a message that came out from the New Jersey Beekeepers Association about the summer meeting, which I've never gone to, but this year I might make a chance chance appearance there and see what's happening. They have a bee auction and stuff. It's held in Ewing and uh, from what I've seen from the pictures of that, I've always, always every year had a conflict, been on vacation or doing something. Maybe this year we'll make it a point to get out there. Uh, just another reminder, EAS, August. Come on. Get, your, get yourself in gear to set that up. Last thing to cover on this show is uh, a couple of videos got posted to the Northwest Channel. Again, youtube.com slash NWNJBA. I mentioned the one video from Jean Miller. There's another one out there from her for Integrated Pest Management. She just covered what it is and why it matters. Uh, Bob Kloss and I did a presentation to our association in March on spring management, swarm prevention, swarm traps, a little of what we just talked about a bit ago in the Swarm Commander piece. You could watch that. That's up there. I posted that one both on the Northwest Channel and my Beekeepers Corner YouTube channel. I'm going to be doing more posts over there of the personal direct stuff that I do individually, not with the association on my own channel. Uh, I think I'm going to try and do more of that this year and build up the following over there. Uh, The last thing to say is there'll be some videos from Managed Mentoring up there in time. Um, Probably we'll try to produce a couple of them today and get them posted over the weekend. Uh, I'm trying to record all of the modules individually. And again, they'll probably be over on the beekeepers corner, which is youtube.com slash corner go over there subscribe and watch for things getting posted and you don't have to listen to me yammer about it you can get the subscription notifications hey a video has been posted so thanks for stopping by the corner today glad to have you like our beloved bees so beekeepers go together we can accomplish great things catch you on the next episode and be well everybody